Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're diving back into the world of tokenization and how it could transform how commodities are traded and even return to a world where commodities operate as currencies. Our guest is Brent de Jong, chairman of Emergent Technology, which has launched Gcoin. Brent's also the managing partner of Dion Capital, an opportunistic investor in the commodity value chains. As always, you can support the show by leaving a review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Brent, thanks for joining. My pleasure. Great to be with you, Paul. So today we're talking about tokenization, tokenization of commodities, and ultimately using commodities as currencies. So somewhat esoteric, and I'm hoping you're going to help us cover that journey and, and get to a point of understanding, or at least for me. Before we dive into Gcoin itself and, and the theory, can you just set up kind of the market today and what some of the challenges are around securitization of commodities that have led you to to see tokenization as a potential solution? I think that there's several themes or trends that are happening you know, within the commodities uh, industry. And, and actually, the, the catalyst is outside of the commodities industry, and it's, it's really being brought to the commodities industry. For example, and uh, consumers, uh, consumers are differentiating the products that, that they want to consume. They feel greater sense of responsibility today more so than ever in terms of being that uh, part of a sustainable supply chain, um, being a good advocate or steward of the world that they live in. And so they're asking questions. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's both the young uh, generation and, and it's the older generation that are, are coming, you know, and retiring. And sometimes, you know, I'm a father and, uh, and you know, and sometimes it's my kids that are asking me and, uh, and spurring my, my change in behavior. And it's, it is that consumer behavior that is being brought uh, across to the supply chain. And, and really, it's trying to, it's being borne out in the sense of transparency. Likewise, you know, one of the other influences in the commodity chain is the whole change to you know, banking. And, you know, our banks around the world have become uh, a lot more like utilities. Um, and that's because whether it's Federal Reserve here in the United States or, in the bank regulators around the world, they've wanted to help bring out, take out systemic risks out of banking systems and sectors. And as a result of that, you know, that systemic risk, it, you know, it, sometimes it's then the credit that's being supplied to the com- commodity supply chain or to the trading companies, or also some of the regulation that's being put through the banks in terms of asking source of funds, how this is happening, you know, is this, uh, you know, money laundering or, you know, terrorist behaviors or, or different things. And so you have that being brought, you know, to the commodity supply chain, you know, at the same time. And, you know, maybe the third trend that we're seeing in the commodity world is, is that just the withdrawal of a lot of the European banks that have been traditional providers of significant uh, amounts of supply chain financing, trade receivable financing, are leaving the business, um, and those that are staying are moving to you know much larger um, counterparty sizes because then it's less risk for them in terms of fraud or other underwriting risk. So you know it's a it's a real dynamic, uh, and it's not it's just started years ago, but it's been really kind of snowballing and and coming you know very ferociously across the commodity world. And, you know, I'd say that, you know, what's been the biggest catalyst as of late is, is what I said first of that consumer behavior change. And so it's pretty exciting to see these trends and, and also that, hey, there's this new technology out there that can help, uh, you know, respond or, you know, solve or, you know, address uh, some of these, you know, trends within the commodity space. So you've got the push towards traceability, sustainability, it's tied in with that. We ourselves on this podcast have covered the tightening of commodity finance out there for a variety of reasons, not least banks exiting for concerns over both fraud and return. You've also got the challenges there around the regulation on the banks and increased capital requirements after Basel III, etc. This is all against a backdrop as well of 
issues of fraud, particularly in the metals space. Can you also frame up for us as well, kind of that aspect as well, where you've had missing wet metals in warehouses or metals painted, painted red to be copper, etc. Can you perhaps just set us up for us, set up for us how the whole metals bonded warehousing system works at the moment and where some of the issues lie? It's a great question. And, you know, I, I've seen pretty wide ranges estimates in terms of it uh, depends on what you know metal uh, you're talking about, right? But let's take uh, gold, for example, where I've seen estimates as much as 4% of the official market could be fake. And it doesn't actually have to be as fake as what you're talking about of like painted just uh, lead, for example, painted gold, but it could be, in fact, a gold bar that's a duplicate of another gold bar, and they wanted to, to just disguise the source of uh, the gold and just get it into the supply chain, and uh, that it just kind of gets copied. There's no central database um, that exists or distributed database, where is what we what our ethos really is, but at the same time, that, that creates a, a centralized record of sorts. But it's um, there's no way to confirm. It's like, is this a duplicate bar? Is there two of these bars out there? And so, you know, we've been solving a lot of these types of problems, and uh, you know, from a technology perspective. And in the first use case that we really tackled was gold. But you know, the technology is um, ubiquitous in terms of what types of metal. So, for example, on the gold side, you know, we actually have a product we call the Gold ID, and we actually take a picture of the kilo bar and this is you know the same for london good delivery or banker bars or however you want to, to call the other bars as well but we take a picture and that picture is transposed into a math hash table that math hash table you know is basically taking data points across this gold kilo bar and uh, and creating a map uh, of that kilo bar Kilo bars, you know, often look, you know, very shiny, very uniform, but they're not. They have pooling striations on them, and it doesn't even take a microscopic, uh, you know, kind of level review of that bar to identify the differences. Your the camera on on today's smartphones is able to pick up those differences, and we can pass that through an algorithm to create that math hash table, and then you can use AI or machine learning in order to teach the the system how to recognize those bars differently and to compare, is this what it is? And, and this is without a serial number on them, right? So when you put a serial number on it as well, then it gets you know locked down even more. And so technology is uh, pretty amazing, you know, in the sense of, and sometimes it's, you know, blockchain have a nice record. Sometimes it's something uh, like our gold ID where it's uh, creating this um, uh, certainty of the physical product. The power is when you can put the both together and you can understand the full provenance where it's come from, plus, you know, the verification of that, you know, asset in of itself. And then you can put insurance on top of it if you want to or need to, but to have your belts and suspenders, you know, kind of approach. But at the end of the day, insurance, sh it should be incredibly cheap because the level of certainty is already, you know, very solid because of the technology in of itself. So, so these, you know, it's fun to see you know, the, how this is, uh, you know, all evolving and changing and, and solving a lot of, you know, the, the basic problems that exist within the, the metals uh, and broader commodity space. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because you've got these two threads are coming together. One is pushing for traceability, right? The idea that you care, Apple or whomever, care where their cobalt comes from. And this is cometh the, cometh the hour, cometh the man type thing, which is you've got this tokenization capability, which is able to efficiently and effectively start to match IDs at that kind of granular level. And I think it's even more exciting than that, Paul, because, you know, Apple cares because their consumer cares. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure Apple you know, has a great ethos in them themselves. But like all, all companies is that that are selling products, you, you, you want to understand your consumer base, right? And, you know, the neat thing about this technology is, is that you can take it all the way back to the origin of something and you can take it all the way forward to the final consumer. And, you know, that that level of connectivity with all of the intermediate points along the line connected is really powerful. 
Yeah. And I want to come back in a moment back to, I guess, your first use case, which is gold. Can you just, before we sort of dig into tokenization and just give us a quick overview of that Get, us, get me up to speed. There are other market pressures going on at the moment as well, right? We've got obviously rapid rising inflation. You've had bucket loads of quantitative easing around the globe from various central banks. We also sit in a with a backdrop of of less certainty around currencies, less certainty around asset value, etc. Can you just frame that up for us at the moment and how that slides into this commodities discussion? Yeah, you know, I think the other topic that's you know front and center for most people also is uh cryptos right in the sense that look at most fx you know trading rooms today they're no longer trading fx they're trading cryptos right and so so whether it's you know the fear inflation or devaluation or other things or if it's greed where's the volatility where's the you know um just uh, driving the, the opportunity for return and a great return in, in a period of time those two things, you know, normally, you know, commodities or gold would be a great, you know, answer or counter answer to both of those things. But there's a lot of new thinking that people are saying, well, maybe there's a new asset type uh, that could be or should be, uh, you know, that uh, protection for rapid rising inflation for quantitative easing, less certainty type of thing. And Look, I, I believe in gold, and this is why we spend so much time on, on it. But you know, I, I, do, I do think also, you know, we need to realize that you know people hold different things of value to them, and uh, and, and the great thing about these technologies is they rep- you can replicate them, and you know the utility that we bring to gold through our G coin and, and our QoS to, uh, network, but you know that could actually be the same for pineapples or other commodities. Uh, and there's probably many, many better examples than the pineapple, but it's a very rapidly uh, evolving world where you can bring utilities to new commodities or or assets, NFTs or different things. And people then can choose really what is of value for them. And then they can, they can use it uh, themselves. I tend to believe, you know, our world is still driven by the physical reality that we want to live in and uh, physical commodities will continue to be the kind of core values uh, of which trade is happening, you know, around the world. But I think, you know, for us who live and invest and, you know, work in the commodity world, we need to understand that, you know, there are other things that are, you know, kind of uh, competing for this role. And, you know, whether it's, you know, legitimate or, or not, there's a lot of people out there that are really focused on on this uh, you know, new phenomenon. Can you just ex- dig into that a little? I mean, I, th- I think that uh, whether it's uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, or central bank digital currencies, or you know, you, and the list can go on, that uh, people are pointing to in terms of that store of value. I think this is the, the real opportunity for the commodity spaces is to actually embrace what's happening, but also apply it to the world that it lives in. For example, let's think about, you know, basic risk management. And um, if you had a gold mine that uh, sold its gold for G-coins, because our G-coin is uh, our tokenization of our responsible gold kilobars that come out of our manufacturing process. But if you have that, now the functional currency for that gold mine is gold. Uh, so you think about from a risk management perspective, it becomes you know a lot easier to risk manage that out. The same could be true of coffee. So why doesn't Starbucks have a coffee coin and pay its you know its coffee growers get paid in coffee coins you know tokens and its the consumers get paid in coffee tokens? Then it becomes a kind of a circular closed loop economy, and you can have that circular economy talk interlink with another circular economy with another circular economy and so forth. And, you know, in that instance, then coffee is the currency of value for that ecosystem. Gold, you know, maybe then the G coin and the gold could be the reference between these circular economies, right? And so just like any other store of value or any other, you know, way that it could be organized, you know, and I think a lot of the power, I mean, we were very early on the uh, supply chain 
I mean, I, I first conceptualized tokenizing gold in 2012 and, and got a, a patent to tokenize any asset to the blockchain. So if it's coffee or gold or you know, other things. So I think we're early on this one also. But you know, my view of the world right now is, is that it's these groups of people and it's these you know, circular you know, economies that are really going to drive um, the way finance and commodity flows and you know, happen going forward. And the, the best thing for the commodity community, in my opinion, is, is that for it to use its, what it produces as a, as a way of value and, uh, and to, to create these circular economies and therefore insulating themselves and protecting themselves in terms of creating you know, just uh, a natural demand for their product and also you know, creating protection from other stores of value kind of creeping in or trying to displace you know, the roles that you know, commodities have had you know, for, you know, since the start of time, quite honestly. And so, you know, I think it's this intersection that's going to be really interesting, of uh, the technology that can connect entire value chains, but also then the, the use of the physical asset of itself. Fascinating. And, and we would have sort of end up on digging into that further, that idea of, of commodities as currencies. Just before we do that, can you just very briefly frame up tokenization for us? And then I really want to dig into kind of where the challenges are, because there's a lot of there's challenges from just general resistance, inertia. There's also interoperability challenges. There's challenges around jurisdiction, legal frameworks. Um, you know, you've been working on this for, for almost a decade, so have really been on that journey. But can you kick us off with just the basics of tokenization? I'm, most of the listeners will be familiar with it, many intimately, but then dig into those challenges. Tokenization at the core is we produce something called asset cards in, in our ecosystem. And this asset card, sometimes people are used terminology NFTs, non-fungible tokens as well. But this asset card for us it describes an asset. In our case, um, the first use case that we put out is, is the asset card is a responsible gold kilo bar. And it's responsible, and I'll talk about that in a second, but it's a kilo bar of gold. And so basically what it is is that asset card describes that kilo bar, where it was manufactured, uh, you know, is it 99.99% pure uh, gold, where it was mined, you know, just all these rich details about the, the asset. But, you know, that asset card could, again, be any, any other commodity at once. But what we're doing is, is that digitally fracturing title to that asset. And, you know, so we have this ERC20 token, because uh, we built off of a, an Ethereum version, we're actually a third generation Ethereum chain. And so this asset card now, you know, has 1000 G coins or has owners, uh, fractured ownership of this physical bar. And for us, it was really important. We actually went back to the Minneapolis grain exchange of the 1850s and looked at their legal technology of, you know, the warehouse receipt. How is the warehouse receipt structured from a legal perspective? What is its status? And the warehouse receipt is, is a, legal ownership over the grain or other commodity that was being stored in at the Minneapolis Grain Exchange. And so we took that legal technology and you know, stapled it with the actual technology um, and uh, of Ethereum, in this case, at ERC-20 tokens. And so your warehouse receipt or your Gcoin token becomes then ownership of that asset card. And so this, this process of tokenization, of this process of linking ownership to an asset is powerful because now that asset you know can stay in one location but the ownership can be passed around and through these tokens erc20 tokens are just a designation within ethereum uh, but basically meaning that there's no limitations on on the movement of that token and so in our system, the G coin, you can redeem your physical gold. Now, of course, you need all thousand G coins for to redeem the entire kilo bar you can exchange it for you know other pieces of gold. But that asset's yours. So it's yours with a group of other people that that you own. And so really what becomes important is standardization. Because you know, you could you can have, and some of this is happening even with NFTs today, you have thousands, hundreds of thousands of asset cards, NFTs being passed around the marketplace. And it's like, well, you know, what is it that I really own? Is there a lot of data on that actual asset card? Is there a lot of data on the understanding the, the underlying? 
And so, so that's what becomes, uh, in my opinion, the most important part of this whole process of tokenization. We actually uh, worked with Deloitte and Touche um, and our internal team originally uh, to set standards. Um, and, and it really isn't to set standards because in the gold industry, there's so many different standards that apply to it, but rather to track standards and uh, to say, look, here's the manufacturing standards for mining, for logistics, processing, vaulting. Here's the standards. And so if you want a permission into our ecosystem, you want to have an ability to create these asset cards because this is a distributed system, then, then you have to meet these standards. And that's why we wrote the Responsible Gold Standards. And Responsible Gold Standards, you know, there's been others like uh, the World Gold Council now has something called the Responsible Gold Mining Principles, where they upgraded from the conflict-free to include, you know, more sustainability type measures there. But, you know, there's 30 different standards that apply to the gold industry overall. But you bring it down and there's really 150 risk cards that people have to really follow. And so if you check these off at a risk level, what's your labor policy, for example, are there child labor uh, involved or what's your environmental wastewater you know, uh, policy? Are you using mercury? Are you, you know, there's all these kind of real root basic risk cards that you can ask across uh, the value chain. And in fact, the United Nations called us out uh, on this uh, DApp or decentralized application that we built for Responsible School Standards as one of the most impactful technologies in terms of advancing the sustainable development goals. And if you look at it, it's 99% of what we did was actually on the standardization front, and only 1% of what we did was on the technology and recording uh, front in terms of what's happened. And so, so that... You know, I went down that standard. I went down that approach of standardization because I was unsure ultimately of what those asset cards should be. There's a lot of different forms of gold in the world, whether it's uh, the large bar format, the kilo bar format. If you go to India, it's 99.95% gold versus 99.99%. You have cougar rands, you have buffalo heads, you have all these different asset types out there. And, you know, we, you know, you can go create asset cards for all those types of things, but we wanted to make it super easy for that end consumer to be able to say, look, I know what I'm buying. I'm getting a piece of this asset and this asset's a responsible kilo bar, which is 99.99% pure. So our tokenization, you know, engine is, is geared towards, you know, being able to have that consumer know exactly what they have. You know, in their wallets or what they're using for commerce uh, on a daily basis. And then they can know exactly whether it's a big mine or a small mine or exactly where it came from. We've tokenized gold out of Suriname and Argentina, the United States, you know, different countries. And we know exactly, you know, where this came from. And, you know, the consumers do as well. They can see in their wallets that audit report, the assay report, where this physical, you know, asset came from. And so, it's pretty interesting to see that, you know, tokenization, while a lot of people talk about it as a legal title, forget that you need to really build it in such a way that the end consumer can easily understand. So you need some level of standardization on the actual physical product as well. And are you seeing, maybe a facile question, but are you seeing a premium on that gold because it's metal these standards or are you seeing a discount on gold that hasn't met those standards How, what's the what what is the real world ramifications around pricing that you're seeing so today it's a premium perhaps in tomorrow will be a discount um but you know the premium so we actually produce responsible gold and it's not actually us producing we, it's really us tracking the responsible gold and it's the the gold ecosystem that's producing this right because it's a distributed ecosystem but the gold that is getting the premium is is that we started with the fabricators for gold industry to to be able to put it into jewelry that some of the the more you know just differentiated consumers or consumers that have differentiated opinions on products we're pretty um, you know excited that like when LVMH uh, brand Bulgari picked up responsible gold for one of their watch lines and there is a premium associated with that because they can you know directly tell their consumers where this gold has come from. In that instance, it's not a kilo bar, but it is a, a grain of gold uh, or kind of a vial of grain of gold that have crypto seals on them uh, to be able to track it that they're buying. But it's, it's you know, for us, we wanted to lead with the fabricators first 
to be able to demonstrate, hey, there is something of value to the transparency and to the physical process. And then moving into the G coins themselves, which is tokenizing responsible gold, premium has been developing as well. We're just launching on a few different exchanges and we'll let the exchanges really set the premiums. But it's interesting because the premiums, in my opinion, so far is different there. And it's it's more because of utility, the utility nature, the ease of using it, being able to send it in one second anywhere in the world. It stays on chain. A lot of people trade Bitcoin and it ends up in a custody wallet and off chain, whereas Gcoin stays on chain and stays true to the ethos of this distributed system. So for different reasons, you know, we're having premiums develop. And, you know, again, we're, we're just tracking the system and the markets, to, you know, developing these things and, and, you know, and, you know, telling us and the world what, you know, what is the value of doing things in the right way, whether that's the right because it's the physical supply and transparency and the responsible ESG nature, or if it's right because of compliance and KYC and AML and, you know, the utility nature and the ease and velocity and the scale and throughput. You know, that creates a velocity in terms of the token on chain. And so it's these types of great things. It would be interesting to see kind of which one, you know, wins out in terms of really dictating what that right premium is. Is it the fabricators or is it the utility nature of the token, you know, of this physical asset? And, I, you know, my belief is, is that over time, as the system becomes more of a standard system for others to use, then at some point, it becomes the price uh, of gold and it actually then you could have a discount on other non you know responsible gold or non g coin 40% of uh, gold uh, manufactured or mined today are mined by people or companies that are part of the world gold council and you know they many if not all uh, you know it's always hard to stay on top of you know who's coming in and out but uh, you know i believe all actually are fully signed on now to the, both the conflict-free and the responsible mining principles, in which case all of that gold could come into the responsible gold system. And you, know, you could end up with that becoming the standard on the way that you know, physical and digital gold you know, is tracked, traced, and you know, consumed. And if that was the case, then I do believe you, you would end up with a, a discount and perhaps even a significant discount, non-responsible gold as well. Mm. So just, I understand the G coin and the utility aspect, and we'll dig into that a little bit more in a moment, but just staying on the actual, you know, use case in the supply chain, when it came to Bulgaria or whoever creating their gold watches from, from uh, this gold standard, are they actually then acquiring it from those specific warehouses and then retiring the asset cards? How does that actually work in, in reality? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's the same thing if you redeem your gold, you know, if you're a G coin and you redeem your gold, the asset card or the tokens get destroyed, right? So the asset cards can continue to exist, but the tokens off the back of them are, you know, destroyed. We have a, an, a legal entity in Switzerland called G Mint, and uh, that G Mint is a bankruptcy remote entity that it is the tokenization the tokenizer, you know, of these asset cards. And so in the example that the fabricator, you know, has uh, grains of gold, uh, remember these are vials uh, that are filled with grains that have crypto seals on them and you can pass them over your Android phone through an NFC and check uh, what's the, the whole provenance there. And so when it's you know, packaged that way and it's sold, when that vial is opened, that crypto seal creates an event on the blockchain. And so in that instance, it's recorded and attached to that asset card that there has been a disconnecting that. And so that asset card can never be anything more than just an asset card, a, a, you know, a set of information on what was there. And those you know, exist in the perpetuity. There's no you know, destruction of you know, those asset cards. But of course, there's no tokens or, or there's no product any longer that is you know, available. And, you know, if you get somebody else that, you know, takes the next uh, vial of uh, grains of gold and, you know, checks the, and says, you know, well, you know, or there's a, you know, they, they swipe it and try to see, you know, is this been tampered with or has it been broken? And they'll know whether it's, you know, actual good gold or perhaps not. And, you know, and I'm not saying it's not gold, but, you know, maybe somebody else is mixing something into the supply chain. All of those are recordable events on the technology. So as fabricator, 
they would have the choice. Do they discard it? Do they send it back or do, you know, but then they have to represent to their end customers. Um, and you know, most of the people who are working in the system are take this really, really seriously. And to give you an idea, if you do tamper with the system and you're found to be out, there's actually indemnities that the entire supply chain provides uh, to the consumers and they have to make them financially whole through the provision of other you know, responsible gold that's come out of the system. So we have you know, the technology to really create the straitjacket, but also the legal environment in order to make sure that we have good actors you know, within the system. So I, I think it's coming together for me, at least. You can take this asset class, this physical commodity, and basically, using the same technology, enable the supply chain to have greater surety over provenance, traceability, <clears throat> and a more efficient way of trading. This is something that the traders themselves can trade, presumably in a more efficient manner. And then it also has that uh, utility for everyday consumers as a store of value. I think that sounds yep, right. You got it exactly right. Good. You, you got there a lot faster than I did, Paul. It took me 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> it took you 10 minutes. Yeah, well, that's not true. But um, I can see that cascading into other commodities. And I, I imagine there's challenges around, you know, we'll come on to it. You know, how do you give that coffee bean or bag of coffee its unique identifier? But where do we stand? Because obviously to get that utility for everyone, you need interoperability to convert into cash, to convert into other asset classes. And there's also the, the legal framework to all of this, to the whole sector, which is very nascent. You know, it's, it's certainly coming under more scrutiny in the US. But essentially, you know, what this does do in forms of risk management is also in some ways protect people against trade barriers, tariffs and the rest. If you're just simply converting, moving a commodity in, in some ways, as opposed to funneling it through different asset classes. So where, where does, maybe we can take that first. Where, where does the legal framework stand on all of this? And where do you see that going? The legal framework is evolving and uh, regulatory and legal. So, you know, although we conceptualized uh, a lot of this stuff in 2012, 2013, we really didn't, you know, put our foot on the gas pedal in any way, shape or form until 2016. And that's where we put our first million dollars in. And we actually put it into legal and regulatory and tax as well, um, because tax is a really significant part of this. And for, let me just start with the tax point first. We vault our gold in Switzerland so that uh, it gets the right tax treatment. As an example, we were you know, looking at vaulting in Texas. I live in Houston, Texas. I came here 15 years ago. And uh, you know, gold is still a legal currency on, on, under Texas law. And we're like, oh, this is a great place to start with. And, um, and we actually found that it was not the right place to start with because of tax. So we were gonna vault our gold in, in Texas. Um, Texas has a great vault here. Um, that was backed by the state and started. But what we found was is that if you have a consumer in, let's say, New York, and you have an e-commerce company producing a good or physical good, whatever, out of California, and they were using G-coins that had gold vaulted in Texas, actually what would happen is it would create a nexus for that e-commerce company to Texas, and they would have to pay a nexus tax or franchise tax or, or different things with, within the the country. So, so we said, okay, well, that that's not going to work because you know not every company in the world wants to be you know a Texan company. So we actually uh, you know did a review from a tax purpose perspective all around the world. We went through 120 different countries, and it's not surprising at all that we ended up with Switzerland as it's been the place for how long as a gold center. But that by vaulting the gold in Switzerland and actually using that tokenized gold in Switzerland, it doesn't actually create the nexus back to uh, Switzerland for a, um, a company to use these tokens in the commerce, right? So, so th that's, you know, we actually started with tax, um, simultaneously went with legal and we said, okay, what is the, you know, the right characterization? We had uh, more than uh, 20 law firms around the world working with us. And and, you know, we used, as I said, the, the Minneapolis Grain Exchange warehouse receipt type technology. But we, we went out and we got, you know, multiple legal opinions or even, in fact, often no action letters from governments um, to say, 
you know, yes, this is an asset. It's not a security. It's not a derivative. It's not a currency. It's an asset. And so when you start putting itself in that, so like, for example, the EU signed off on the G-Coin as an asset. So Bitcoin and Ethereum didn't go ask the EU, but we did. We went to the before launching of, you know, what is this? And we got a no action letter there. We worked with Switzerland and everybody kind of treats a little bit different to be in FINMA or their SRO, a self-regulatory organization, you know, that sits on top of, you know, our FINMA entity, Dubai. Uh, we worked with the government there with the DMCC more specifically to have a authorized and approved uh, plan, which included, you know, the G-Coin asset. We worked with the Brazilian Central Bank and CNB in Brazil. So a number of countries around the world to work on. What is that legal standing? What is that regulatory standing? And, you know, as of late, you know, Gensler with the SEC has been very open in terms of, you know, a lot of these stable coins being securities. You know, and I actually totally agree with them in the sense that they're tokenizing money market accounts, which are full of security. So it is a security. Whereas we're tokenizing assets, or maybe not in some cases. But has there been a new event, a recent event on, on that topic? No, I might edit this out. But obviously, the uh, the, <laughs> the tether coin headlines don't look very good, do they? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's one of the unique things about this, right? Because that also has knock-on benefits for banks. If this is an asset rather than a securitization, it, it actually can support the cash reserves they need to hold if their customers have these. G coins in their in their accounts. Well, I think it's actually more transformational than that, Paul. In the sense that you know, banks today actually don't want to hold cash on their balance sheets. Um, You know, they have to have deposit reserve ratios, and you know, they have to. You know, there's a there's a pretty big obligation, and there's almost no return on it. So, and the reason why it's more transformative than that, you know, if if you hold a G coin through our wallet technology, now you can hold a G coin through other wallet technologies as well. But if you hold it through our wallet technology, there's a unique key structure. And so the the user, the owner of that wallet, that smart contract, they actually hold the keys. So that G coin, you know, if the bank was to sell them, you know, through this, you know, technology, the G coin, it doesn't sit on the bank's balance sheet. It sits on, you know, the consumer's wallet. It sits on the balance sheet of the individual. So you actually have a lot of regulatory efficiency. You know, Basel III, you have an 80% risk weighting for your metals and on your balance sheet. You know, in this instance, you have zero risk weighting, you know, as a bank on your balance sheet for, for you know, selling these tokens because it actually sits on the individual's balance sheet. And so, you know, particularly, you know, high net worth individual, this becomes really powerful because you can easily go through the ceilings of FDIC, you know, for dollar deposits or you know, other locations, whereas here you have, you know, irregardless of the amount, there's no cap on it. It's on your balance sheet on nobody else's. Nobody can take it away from you. And it's a fully insured product on top of that, you know, because the G-Mint tokenization actually provides an insurance. So, so it's a pretty powerful combination of things in the sense that bank no longer has to hold deposit or regulatory capital or, you know, anything if they're clients are using these asset tokens. Hmm. So where where is Gcoin today? And I guess this is sort of bringing in the, the interoperability discussion. It's a great word. And I, I love how, let's call it, the traditional world has adopted a, a crypto word, right? And interoperability, as you clearly know, from our other conversations, is but for, for listeners, is just being able to move from one blockchain to another blockchain. And that's where the, the root of that word started from. And it's like, well, can you be on Bitcoin and Ethereum? And now there's so many um, you know, other parachains and other things out there that you know, it has a much bigger connotation today. Uh, but I, I totally agree with you and the way you use the word, you know, Paul, is, is that you know, what's that interoperability back to traditional uh, SWIFT or, and even alternatives like mobile money or e-wallets and these types of, of things. So Gcoin, we've integrated, for example, into MoneyGram. We've integrated it where we have a strategic partnership with them. Their wallets and our wallets are interchangeable. You know, that likewise with MasterCard, we have a strategic partnership. But we also run a payments business where we can enable e-commerce companies to accept Gcoins as well as Bitcoins and other cryptos and other alternatives, mobile monies and different things. And 
So we wire into many, many places around the world, Paytm in India, EasyPay in Pakistan, Alipay. You know, we have Airtel, MTN, Tigo, Vodafone, Mobile Money, just a number of different places as we can to make that interoperability happen. The beautiful thing about, you know, what we've done so far is it doesn't matter if you tokenize the, you know, gold or if you tokenize pineapples or maybe even cocoa or coffee. You pick, you know, what you want to tokenize. If you have that interoperability or you have this kind of hub, you know, connectivity amongst things, then that interoperability can exist. But you have to have connectivity. I mentioned a little bit, but maybe not that much about the chain that we built. You know, we built a, a blockchain. We worked with uh, JP Morgan's Quorum, and we built something we call QOS, where we you know, fine-tuned our chain for payments. So we slaved our chain to one-second block times, and we do 10,000 transactions per second. Um, so we wanted to have speed, velocity, throughput, so that you could use these asset tokens like uh, you know, a payment, or you can just in time load your prepaid cards and have a very clean user experience. Uh, on on things, and so you know our chain is called QoS, but we actually just put Gcoin onto public Ethereum as well. Um, we worked with a, a firm called Cross Tower, and so you know on Thanksgiving Day, you know, so to give you an idea how wild you know these markets are. You know most traditional markets were closed on Thanksgiving Day. We we launched Gcoin on on uh, Cross Tower's network, and so we had interoperably. Put QoS on, or the Gcoin on the QoS and the public Ethereum chain, and now you can buy it, you know, on the exchange uh, that Cross Tower has, and so now you have trading pairs: Bitcoin, Gcoin, Ethereum, Gcoin, Dollar, Gcoin, you know, and so on. And so, you know, it's exciting to see how interoperability can help start creating, uh, you know, adoption and comfort and price discovery and you know any number of different topics. Uh, you know, that are important, you know, for, you know, something to be successful. And might meet a real need out there or desire for stable coins that are tied to a real asset underneath them. Absolutely. Or, you know, some people need something to trade in and out of, you know, you know, when there's so much volatility around the cryptos, you know, sometimes you want to be there, sometimes you don't. And so yep. we want to make sure that this is uh, a viable alternative in those instances, as, as well as in of itself. Can you imagine if the G coin you know, the utility nature, and it was fairly priced in. And Gcoin could be two times, three times uh, the price of gold uh, if yeah. you value utility. Who knows? Uh, Which would then drive more producers onto it. Exactly. The conceit of this episode is is really saying, okay, you built this technology. There's this technology out there. There's, there's the growth of the underlying understanding from the public, demand from consumers, the frameworks are getting built. This ultimately leads to a point which you discussed earlier on, the idea that there's no reason that this couldn't apply to all asset classes and you know certainly in the commodities world where you've got a coffee producer who would rather just you know who meets the various protocols and and, and can therefore just get his or her coffee onto onto the the c coin and then suddenly that unlocks a whole lot of opportunity for them to get, whether it's getting better prices or whatever it might be. Can you just let's sort of put our spacesuits on for a minute and talk about where this really could go and how all those different closed loops could really transform the world of commodity trading for producers, for traders and consumers? We have an office in Accra in Ghana. We uh, have about uh, almost 30 people there, and they're working in payments and supply chain and, and other things. We actually have, a, a, we've been licensed by the Central Bank of Ghana. One of the significant commodities in Ghana is cocoa. And, uh, you know, gold too, by the way. I mean, there's more gold per capita in Ghana than any other country in the world. So, I mean, we're, we're there for a reason. But they're also cocoa. I mean, if you look at you know, a very substantial part of uh, cocoa supply in the world comes from Ghana and its neighboring country, Ivory Coast. And, you know, the way that the, the value in you know, a physical supply chain works is, is you have a bunch of small cocoa producers, farmers, they sell to a cooperative, and that cooperative sells to somebody like Barry Calvo um, out of Belgium, Switzerland, you know, um, Europe, let's just call it. And so, you know, they've done a great job on sustainability and uh, and they want to know kind of where their cocoa is coming from. But 
And at the same time, you're not really sure who's making money in the entire value chain. So if the C coin stood for cocoa instead of coffee, Paul, you know, maybe we could actually, you know, actually have the cocoa farmers paid in cocoa coins. And then you can actually see that how much is the manufacturer, how much is the wholesaler, how much is the aggregator cooperative government taking, how much is the actual individual farmer actually receiving. And you know, from a sustainability perspective, that's what's you know, end consumers and you know, ESG investors are, are most interested in is, is that, you know, let's make sure that the, the actual person who's doing the heavy lifting has the sustainable living conditions, is able to you know, earn that fair return. And so if you can match the physical with these tokens you know, all the way down, you can actually accomplish the emission that a lot of people, you know, are on today, and so, and then you can make that that C coin interchangeable with the G coin within the whatever digital central bank currency, or or you know, you can have that you know market you know across things. But you could have, and actually, by the way, in that example, the cocoa farmer is happy because you know often they don't aren't able to actually sell or lock in the high cocoa price on the day that the market spikes. And so you can give them hedging tools. You have the ability to really let them manage their lives and be connected into the global world in such a way that they're elevated you know, from their current circumstances. Um, and then you can have real change. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, um, it's fascinating because they'll also be protected against FX fluctuations, all of these other things, right? It's almost a return to a, a much more efficient barter economy in a way. But it is. I mean, that's what commerce has been based off of, you know, from the beginning of time is barter, right? And so, you know, something of value versus something else of value. And in this, in this modern world is that you can, you can actually efficiently price that what's your digital asset versus my digital asset and it's 24 7 it's in a borderless and you know then you have an ability to participate on your terms and you know that's you know basically every person becomes their own central bank and we hope that gcoin could be the central bank of central banks but you know that's um ultimately what's happening is is everybody and it becomes, you know, their their own control, their own, you know, destiny. What does this mean then for the established traders in the world today? How will this transform? You know, because obviously a lot of the the value dr- driven by the traders is their ability to better price things than the average person to extract a lot of value during the transformations down the supply chain. I think that ultimately, what might happen is you might find. You know, instead of the reference point being Chicago or the reference point being, you know, what London or the reference point being whatever, you might find that you have distributed, you know, pricing in the sense that why not Rondianopolis, you know, Brazil being the pricing point for, you know, grains? I mean, there's more grains that flow through there than any other city and probably in the world. And so you could have localized price discovery on these things. And so, you know, could a, could a trader still play a role? Absolutely. But now it's like, okay, Rondianopolis versus Chicago, or, you know, you start getting, you know, these types of things and, and then it's, and it becomes, you know, a market making, a, you know, a market efficiency, you know, type of function on, on things. And it's not just like, Hey, I make a spread because I sit here. It's like, well, I'm providing liquidity, I'm making the market, I'm connecting these different things. And so, you know, I do think there's a room for traders, but, you know, in that instance example, they're really wearing the proper trader hat. And so, you know, their, their job descriptions might change or evolve a little bit, but I think there's clearly is a, a role for, you know, those, those uh, functions in this world where we have connected circular economies. Fascinating. Just before we, we let you go, Obviously, you've alongside uh, creating Gcoin and and this whole ecosystem, Dion Capital, you know your, your investors in the commodity value chains. It is, to all accounts, an exciting time to be in commodities. Where are you seeing opportunity? Kind of what else are you looking at that kind of uh, you think is going to be the trend over the next three to five years? 
my background is really as an opportunistic investor. And, you know, I've been in, on the investment side for more than 20 years now. And I, I tend to go where other people don't want to go. And so, you know, the, the world's very structured in terms of there's a lot of people with mandates for whether it's credit or equity or, or different things. And, and they have a square box that they manage within. I really like finding those things that are a little bit outside of those square boxes. Um, and, uh, you know, because it's a greater value that I can provide as an opportunistic investor. And that might be a mezzanine, you know, debt piece, or maybe it's a, a little bit smaller, you know, mine or producer or processor. And so that's where I'm spending my time. We've invested heavily in fertilizers in the past. Uh, you know, love to see that that's coming out in a very uh, you know, aggressive pricing way. That was a much longer investment cycle than initially thought, but it will end up being far better in terms of total returns. And so, you know, it's it's neat to see, you know, that um, you know what we've put to work can make money both uh, from the commodity perspective, but also an operational improvement uh, perspective. So we're active and uh, we've been quite active and we'll continue to be active in the space and broadly excited, quite honestly. Fantastic. So you can get a G-Coin wallet today, if you'd like. On, on so in the, United, in the United States, uh, yes, it's available in 33 states. Um, we just bought a bank. Um, and so that will help us transport across all of the uh, st states. And then come January, we'll be launching globally. We've been laying the, the framework, uh, as, a, as you heard, through this time for more than a decade. And so I'm pretty excited to see all, you know, just get supercharged. Fabulous. Yeah, well, it's going to be an interesting journey to watch for sure. And I think the, you know, the takeaway from this is that, you know, you already this technology, I mean, it exists. It has such huge capacity to meet the, those, those sort of connecting threads of, of traceability, but also DeFi or financing that's, that's lacking and, and as well as um, how will commodities trade in the future. So, yeah, it's been a fantastic discussion and you know, look forward to having you back on in a few years and, and, and see whether we've got a, a C-Coin and, uh, and the rest of them. Look forward to it, Paul. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.